People think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Uh, Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Jeffrey Block, and he has been a nephrologist for over 15 years, and he is with Denver Nephrology. So welcome to the show, Dr. Block. Thank you very much, Laurie. I'm pleased to be here. What made you get into nephrology? I absolutely fell in love with the science of what the kidney does. Um, To me, the kidney is the most amazingly complex organ, bar none. And I loved the fact that you could take care of patients for their entire life, from children through octogenarians, through disease with their kidney failure, with transplant. To me, that was really special. And I grew up with a father that was a head and neck cancer surgeon, and I saw this very special bond that my father had with people who had really pretty terrible illness. And to me, um, I actually very much enjoy the um, ability and privilege to take care of people, you know, who are really quite ill. Uh, To me, that's one of the most rewarding things about what we do. And then you get to see them get better and feel Absolutely. better and get transplanted. And yeah. Well, today we're going to be talking about a pretty difficult topic, and it's um, bone and mineral disorder. And one of the things that, you know, we need to learn more about and patients need to learn more about is that there aren't any guidelines. Um, and explain to everybody what a guideline is um, so they, that we're all on the same page. Guidelines, honestly, Lori, have, have taken on even more uh, confusion in, in the recent Uh, you know, very recently, we have a set of guidelines in general, which mean these are essentially instructions or tools that doctors should use um, to practice the best medicine that they can for a particular area. Now, many people, when they talk about guidelines, think that they are um, essentially dogmatic rules that must be followed. And that's not at all what guidelines are. Guidelines are a synthesis of information that are meant to help doctors do what in general is the right approach for that particular illness. So it's like looking at all the studies and coming together with the best guideline for patient care, basically. Yeah, what it does is it allows, it's a single document that allows doctors to go somewhere and say, all right, um, without me personally having to go review 200 or 300 different articles and try to put them together and make sense, a group of experts from around the world or in the country get together and do that for them. And they say, here's what we think is the best way to manage this particular illness. Now... The problem comes sometimes in that some guidelines are strictly what we call opinion-based. Some are a blend of opinion-based and strictly evidence-based medicine. And some of them are very strictly only what evidence supports you should do. And believe it or not, we have, unfortunately, not very many guidelines that are based on this is what we know you should do and particularly in the area we're going to talk about today. So explain a little bit about what bone and mineral metabolism is. I always think of it as phosphorus, yeah. but I want to hear the <laughs> physician view. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a really complicated uh, set of things we talk about. We have a term now that you're probably familiar with, but many patients might not be, called CKD-MBD. 
and it stands for um, chronic kidney disease, mm-hmm. mineral and bone disorder. Mm-hmm. And essentially, we're talking about four or five things when we use that phrase. We're talking about um, calcium and the levels of calcium in the blood. We're talking about phosphorus, as you said, <laughs> and levels of phosphorus in the blood. We're talking about something called parathyroid hormone, or PTH, mm-hmm. and what's the ideal level of that in the blood. Then we're also talking about we talk about um, bone health, um, which is a pretty difficult thing to wrap our arms around. And we talk about recently added to this definition is something called vascular calcification, which is, again, a pretty confusing um, term, but basically means how much hardening of the arteries, in particular calcium buildup in the arteries of our patients. Is there any? Is there a lot? And we try to put these five or six things together when we talk about um, mineral and bone disorders. I should actually say there's one other component that's quite important in there, and that's vitamin D nutrition and vitamin D health. Um, Many people are familiar with getting vitamin D Mm -hmm. during their treatments, but we now have a second component of vitamin D health that we think about and talk about, which is what we call nutritional vitamin D. And um, that's part of this MBD it's confusing because I know for many years, you know, you have to manage your phosphorus and calcium because later on in life, you basically just start to turn to stone. Yeah. I mean, you're, I've had friends that have gotten calciphylaxis and it, it comes out through their skin. Mm. The calcium is, you know, it's, it's awful. So one of the things that the community is trying to develop is a guideline. And I've been on some of these discussions and nobody can really make up their mind what is the right guideline. What, why, what is the issue with this? Well, um, you're absolutely right. First of all, let me tell you, this is a terrible problem. And it's a terrible problem because the consequences of the, of the disorder are years down the road. And they involve things like your bones and your arteries that we just don't think about every day, and they're not obvious to us. But you're, you're absolutely right. Phosphorus in particular, we now know, has this very critical central role in what happens to people's bones and what happens to the arteries. Um, Calciphylaxis is an is a absolutely terrible, extreme example of calcification kind of gone wrong. Why don't we have something that tells us exactly what we should do and exactly, um, you know, how your doctor should treat you and to what level? The problem that we face in in nephrology in in particular right now is that we have a lot of what we call associative um, data, which means that we know without any doubt that phosphorus is associated with really bad things. Those bad things could be going in the hospital, having a heart attack, having hardening of your arteries, and people not living as long. We know that there's this relationship between phosphorus and those events. Mm -hmm. And we know that's true with calcium, right? And we Mm -hmm. actually know it's true with PTH. Mm -hmm. The problem is what we don't know is if we reduce your phosphorus to a certain level, will it make people better? That's really the crux. If we reduce your calcium, if we reduce your phosphorus, we have a lot of belief that it will, and we have a lot of this associative evidence that suggests that it probably will. But unlike hemoglobin or anemia that you referred to, where we've done a lot of trials and we've said, all right, this is the right place to be, we haven't done those trials with phosphorus or or mineral and bone disorder at all. I mean, I think you'll be shocked, and I think everybody would be shocked to know that we have very, very little evidence to guide us on what the right thing to do is for our patients. So we all do what we think is, and we write guidelines that tell us, this is what we really think we should be doing. 
and we need to go get some of these these trials to, to prove it. Well, I was trying to think too, as a patient, you probably can't find a lot of patients running around with low phosphorus levels. Very, very few. No, very, very few. <laughs> it's probably hard to find that control group it too. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. <laughs> because that is it's so difficult to manage your phosphorus when you're on dialysis. It's just everything has phosphorus in yeah, it. I yeah. think and Jello phosphorus is in places is, you're not even aware right. of. Right. I yeah. mean, water has phosphorus yeah. in it. I think yeah. sometimes with the flavored waters, <laughs> you know, the iced teas have phosphorus in them now. It's it's everywhere. Well, you know, you make a good point. And let me um, put a plug in for something that I think patients can really be involved with and that we as a community need to do, which is um, there are absolutely huge amounts of phosphorus hidden in our food. The, the people who make our food don't have to tell us if they put phosphorus in right. it. They are putting phosphorus in it because phosphorus makes foods moist and it makes them, uh, it's a preservative. So they add phosphate to our food in, in really huge amounts. And there is, we're trying, some of us are trying to push, you know, the FDA and the appropriate organizations for food labeling that includes phosphorus. Yeah, it's not on the label, so you don't even know. No. So that's Uh, another problem, huh? It's it's absolutely a huge problem. You're probably aware, I'll take one second and tell you, you're probably aware of a, a, a very good paper that came out where patients were instructed to do nothing more than look for the word phosphate on the package, anywhere on the package in the ingredients. And if they saw the word phosphate to not choose that product, and they reduced their phosphorus in their blood by over one milligram, I mean, really a big amount. Um, wow, just go from by, five to just, four or six by, to five. Wow, yeah. just by, I mean, I wonder what foods they found. I mean, you probably just have to eat fruits and vegetables and meat. And no, actually, you know, it's interesting, Lori. Um, if you just pick up, if you go to the store and pick up two different packages of chicken breasts, mm-hmm. one of them will probably have the word phosphate because it's been injected and one of them will not. Um, same wow. thing with meats or hamburgers or hot dogs or, I mean, things that half of them will and half of them won't. And, um, wow. I didn't know that. That's a great tip. Yeah. So just look for that word. And if you can, look for another product like that that doesn't have that word in it. Now, unfortunately, if it doesn't have the word, it doesn't mean it's not there. But at least you can be, you know, a little sure more. they didn't use the ink to print it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty crazy when you start understanding all the food that has phosphorus. Well, when we're developing these quality measures, you call it. Yes. Is there something that the community is in agreement upon? Um, Well, that's a very good question. I think that we absolutely, there are a few things we agree on. Um, First of all, there's no controversy as to whether a relationship exists between phosphorus and calcium and PTH and these adverse outcomes that you and I talked about. We all know that um, phosphorus, when it's high, should be lowered. Right. What we can't agree on is um, what's the right, exact right number Um, that it should be lowered too. But we know when it's high, it's bad for our patients. There's no controversy. Phosphorus is, we now know, absolutely a critical regulator of how fast our patients develop this calcium in their arteries. So where, where do you, at right at this present day, where do you want to see your patients' numbers? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think all patients at every stage of kidney disease, every level of kidney function should have a normal phosphorus. Normal, absolutely normal phosphorus, which means four and a half is the high end. Okay. Now I, I can already hear patients across, you know, <laughs> everywhere groaning with that. Right. But I can tell you my dialysis unit, I take care of in my facility, we have about a hundred patients. I've been there for 12 years. Our average phosphorus is four and a half, 4.6. It's doable. Um, it just takes a, a 
almost um, kind of dogmatic commitment to this particular issue on everybody's part, the social worker, the nurses, the technicians, the patients, the dietitians. Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it's true. So I think that for our patients who have kidney disease but aren't requiring dialysis, I think the right number personally is three and a half. Most of us um, who have completely normal kidneys have a phosphorus less than 3.5. And it's really not um, very many people who go above that. And there's a lot of, again, associative data that says that when you go above 3.5, we can start seeing these these things begin to happen. Start the calcium yeah, building up. And- exactly. Even in these large groups of people who have ostensibly normal kidneys, when their phosphorus goes above 3.5, we see and can detect these events. What about PTH? This is probably the most controversial thing. We have had a guideline in the United States since 2003 that said the right target number was a value of between 150 and 300. Um, I recently served on the what we call KDGO guideline committee, which, which helped write the first international set of guidelines for this area. We recommended drastically changing the parathyroid hormone level. We felt that The 150 to 300 was much too narrow. And our goal with parathyroid hormone is to protect your bones. We know that when PTH is high, it makes your bones lose their strength and lose their mineral. And ultimately that leads to early fractures and pain, right? And it can be a really severe and somewhat devastating consequence. The vertebrae can collapse and people can, you know, can really... Can start shrinking. Start shrinking. That's (laughs) absolutely right. The real question again is what's the right level for our patients? We know that it needs to be above normal. Uh, A completely normal PTH is less than 65. Okay. 65. And, and believe it or not, in people with, with kidney function that's completely normal, when it's 65, it already is hurting the skeleton. It's already hurting your bones. But we know that people with kidney disease are a little bit resistant to the actions of this particular hormone. So we know it needs to be higher. Our new guidelines suggest between a range of about 150, 130 to 150, all the way up to about 500 or 550, we are not particularly certain what's happening to your bones in that range. And we have decided as a guideline committee that we want to make sure we don't hurt anyone. We don't recommend they get medicine that might actually be hurting them. If we are too aggressive with lowering your PTH, we cause a bone disease that's also bad for you. Um, and your bones can't, kind of, can't um, build up the right amount of strength where they need it. It's called remodeling. And they can't do that when we when we make your PTH too low. And we know if it's too high, as I said, you lose bone minerals. So we have to pick somewhere in between there. In that range, though, it doesn't mean, it's very confusing, it doesn't mean that everything in that range is okay. What it means is within that range, your doctor should use that test along with a few other tests, okay, to try and figure out where you, that individual is at. If you are 100 and then you go to 200 and then you go to 300 and then you go to 400 and then you go to 500, Mm -hmm. there's a problem. Okay. There's a, (laughs) there's definitely a problem. Things are going the wrong direction. And your parathyroid's being overactive. Exactly. And so the doctor (laughs) needs to step in and do something. But if you come to us and your PTH is 300 and your bones don't have any indication that they're weak and your other blood tests are normal, and it stays at 300, our suggestion is don't do anything, right? Don't, don't do anything. So it's a terribly confusing area. It really is. And we're trying to protect your bones and we're trying to protect strength. We feel like within this range, that's the place to be. So with yeah. the well, what are some of the treatments um, available when you start to have, I mean, high phosphorus, there's a, a lot of different medications. 
I had a parathyroidectomy when I was 13, and it was interesting because probably that's why I have gray bones today, because they Mm. were really proactive, because Mm. back in the late 70s, they didn't know, but my physician believed that, you know, we got to take care of this right away. So uh, that's what they were doing then. That was the guideline in the 70s. So tell us a little bit about what the treatments are today. Sure. Let me start with uh, phosphorus because that's actually the one that we have pretty well-established treatments and they all work roughly the same way. So we ask all of our patients to take what are called phosphate binders. You're well aware of this and I'm sure the people listening to this are well aware of this. Phosphate binders come in a variety of different forms. They all work the exact same way. All of them on the market today, all they do is they simply mix up with your food when you eat, stick to the phosphorus and they um, reduce how much your body absorbs. There's one difference, though, is some of them have calcium. They're different components that how they do it, correct? That's exactly right. So they have a different thing that is doing the sticking to the phosphorus. Okay. And we broadly lump them into those that are, have calcium, right, and those that don't have calcium. You may remember, um, you used to probably get something called aluminum. Yes, um, I got uh, aluminum yeah. um, aluminum binders, yeah. yes. Basagel and dialum. That's exactly right. And <laughs> aluminum was an absolutely wonderful binder. It stuck to phosphorus better than anything we have today. But it turns out it wasn't a great idea because you absorbed some of that and it had some other uh, problems. I'm recyclable now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I have a lot of aluminum now. (laughs) Um, So you're exactly right. Calcium binders and non-calcium binders. And that's a huge controversy. Almost everyone who knows me knows where I fall on that. that, uh, You don't like calcium, do you? Bully (laughs) pulpit. It's not that I don't like calcium. I think that we've learned a lot uh, about how to treat our patients. And my own research and my synthesis of what's been done suggests that... If you have normal active bones, getting calcium probably is perfectly fine for you. And getting calcium as a binder to some upper limit is perfectly fine. But if you don't happen to have normal active bones and your bones aren't doing what they should, then they're not remodeling, right? Because they're not turning it over. Yeah, that same amount of calcium is now terrible for you and you calcify yourself, particularly when your phosphorus is high, Mm -hmm. right? So I. I tend to err on the side of, if I'm not sure, then I'm gonna pick what I think is the safer one, right? I also, you may know, I also happen to have done a study directly comparing people who got, I randomized 130 of my own patients as soon as they came to me on dialysis and randomized half of them to get calcium and half of them to get a non-calcium binder. In this case, it was Savellamer. And we followed them over five years and the people who got Savellamer lived a lot longer than the people who got calcium. Now that we've learned a lot since that study, and again, I think it has to do with what's happening to their bones, and it's a bit complicated, but but in general, um, you know, we face this dilemma of calcium versus non-calcium. You know very well that calcium binders are very, very cheap, right? Mm-hmm. The tums. non-calcium binders, tums. they're Tums, yeah, they're really <laughs> cheap. The non-calcium binders, unfortunately, are very, very expensive, right? Right. And um, this will become... A very big issue because of the, the what we call the PPS. or The proposed um, rule. Yeah. The prospective payment system. Yes. Which they're going to bundle all the drugs and together I, and they're going to try to figure out what to give people. And the cost that. of these medicines in particular, the government has now said the dialysis provider has to pay for. And putting the dialysis provider in charge of what people can get or not get, you know, is something that 
is, is going to be a difficult situation How for would us. that work? Prospective payment system, basically the providers are going to be able to have a lump sum and they're going to work with a nephrologist, I guess, to figure out how, how does this work? Because you prescribe and you're my doctor, you give mm. me a medication, but somebody else is in charge if they want to pay for it or not. So how does that work? Well, um, it's completely unknown how it will work. It goes into effect um, the beginning of 2011. And the way you described it is correct. Whatever I prescribe for you as your doctor, if it's a phosphate binder or what we call a calcium emetic, Sensipar, then your dialysis company has to pay for that. It's very unclear how either the large or the small dialysis providers are going to accommodate that in the, in the way they do things. I, I anticipate what's going to happen is that we are going to have to figure out some sort of reasonable approach that works, that is a compromise between I can do whatever I want to do as your doctor and the provider saying you can't do anything other than what I tell you. Right. Neither of those extremes are going to be where we're at, you know, a year and a half from now. We're going to be somewhere in the middle. And I suspect it's going to come down to we have to understand about each individual's bone health. We're going to have to know that if we're going to prescribe the right binder. And honestly, you and I know, um, again, something that the audience may not want to hear, the best way to treat phosphorus without any doubt, is dialysis. Right. More, More dialysis, dialysis is better. Is the answer to phosphorus. Right. The problem is each session gets rid of one day's worth of phosphorus. We, you know, obviously we do it three days a week and we eat seven days a week. More dialysis is the best way to get right. rid of this. And um, I personally suspect, and my patients know this, I will be dialyzing my patients more. Um, you know, we talk, you talked about adequacy. We have a guideline for what is an adequate dialysis. It's right? a minimum. Minimum. <laughs> it's right? not adequate, it's minimum. To me, if your phosphorus is not controlled to normal, then you're not getting adequate dialysis. That's the bottom line. And, and I, I want to take this opportunity to tell, tell you, and I know you know this because we've met uh, and talked about this, but blaming the patient for the phosphorus being high is ludicrous. If you ask people, nephrologists and dietitians and nurses, why is phosphorus high? Everybody wants to point the finger at our patients, right? I it's know. not the patient's fault, right? It's because their kidneys don't work and right. phosphorus is everywhere, okay? <laughs> and we don't give people enough dialysis to get rid of it. Right. That's the reason phosphorus is high. True. I really appreciate that because, you know, I run a support group every month and that is the topic. I mean, patients come in just frustration levels of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to, I'm trying. And they right. just, they're like punishing themselves and it's. Well, and their, their healthcare providers punish them. And they it's blame frustrating them. because yeah. it's like, wow, you know. Everybody eats, everybody needs to eat. Nobody yeah. thinks about, you know, having a burrito yeah. or, you know, beans. I mean, everything has phosphorus in it. Yeah. And so it's uh, it's really great that you say that. And I'm sure the patients will be very appreciative of it because they do. They're like, you're just eating the wrong thing. Yeah. And I've gone to a lot of conferences, a lot of dinners, and as a group of patients, and we go there, and sometimes there's nothing we can eat, right. and it's put on by renal care professionals, <laughs> so um, they need to give a, a break and, and understand how difficult it is. Yeah, let me tell you a very quick anecdote. I gave a talk two weeks ago uh, here in California. I, I flew out, and I gave a, a, a lecture to a large group of people, and after after supper, uh, two dietitians came up to me and and really wanted to challenge me about how they could lower phosphorus in their patients. And we spent a good 15 minutes talking. And finally I asked, well, how long do you dialyze your patients? Three hours was their answer. And I said, you know, 
um, we could talk here until, you know, I'm blue in the face. You need to give your patients more dialysis and stop blaming them and blaming yourselves for why their phosphorus is high. Um, their kidneys don't work and you need to provide some minimum measure of, you know, renal replacement. It's so important. I mean, more dialysis is needed. And I hope that uh, everybody listening here will go read their labels and take the the Jeffrey Block Challenge. That would be great. And uh, report back. Okay, sounds great. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. 